I think people are going to stop looking at their careers as one big monolithic thing. And hopefully what that what happens is that people start to say, you know, I am a person and I have a lot of skills that I can apply in a lot of different ways in a lot of different industries. And my career is not so much one big thing as it is a series of adventures, hopefully. Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast presented by Applied Software. You're invited to join our MEP and construction innovation adventure with the mission to propel this great industry forward. My guest today is Jennifer Byrne. She's a veteran of the tech industry, most recently as the CTO of Microsoft's US division. She understands the business of technology and is also an advocate for the future of work. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Yeah, excited to, to dive into a lot of different topics here, but let's start with how you got into the, the tech industry to begin with. Uh, well, it was a windy path for me. I actually um, started, you know, way, way back when in, um, in nonprofit and social services and, uh, and made a move into tech in the late 90s um, because it was the industry that was just had the most growth and the most opportunity. So uh, a little career change and ended up as an information security analyst working for government clients for a long time and then moved into some of the bigger companies. Most of my time was in cybersecurity, and um, and I just got to know the business of technology from an engineering and a systems perspective, and then a strategy perspective and a sales perspective. But but the first move um, was not unlike uh, a lot of the moves that we're seeing into technology today, where it just has a um, a level of opportunity for people from a you know from a salary. Uh, and a growth perspective that you're just not seeing in other industries. So it was a practical move that paid off really well for me. Yeah, nice. What was it like working your way up through Microsoft and everything? Well, I joined Microsoft in 2014 as the chief security officer for the public sector group. And that okay. was because I'd had a, a, a long career in cybersecurity. And so I, I didn't, I wouldn't say I worked my way up. I worked my way across the company. Uh, up a little bit and then largely across. I joined when uh, when there were significant security concerns around the adoption of public cloud, mostly in countries outside of the U.S. or non-U.S. countries. And so I um, spent a couple of years talking about policy and regulation and the uh, relative security and benefit of using cloud as opposed to you know having your data stored uh, on site, which was a big conversation back then. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then I moved into a CTO role and and. Um, and the challenge was that the Microsoft portfolio was so big and broad that you couldn't possibly be an expert in any particular technology, right? There's just, there's too much of it. And sure. so you have to learn how to get to the right altitude and think very strategically. And what I eventually learned is the real key to that job is to spend less time understanding technology and more time understanding the problems that you're trying to get technology to solve. So you become more of an expert in your customers and the industries they live in. And from there, you have the context to understand how to apply technology. And that's the key to transformation, which is what really is expected of a CTO to think very strategically about how technology can change the future. So um, so it was a wild ride. Uh, I loved it. And it was an opportunity to really dive deeply into a lot of areas um, that I wouldn't have otherwise had the opportunity to do. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, definitely all comes back to people <laughs> in the end, you know, you can't embrace technology without first getting the people on board and ready to embrace the technology. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I want to pick your brain on before we move on is with 
your background of kind of the, the cloud and, and cybersecurity, you know, obviously that's become a, a hot button topic as of late with all the, the cyber attacks. How has that world kind of changed or, or, or grown over the last couple of years? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, some things change and a lot of things stay the same. Uh, I have to say that back in the early 2000s, you know, I was working for Symantec and, and back then the big product that people bought was an antivirus software. And from an antivirus vendor perspective, every year we'd look at these charts and the growth of malware and attacks and, um, and just wonder, like, is this going to last? Or, or do you think everyone's going to kind of figure this out and this whole security thing is going to go away? And uh, it's so funny how naive we were back then, because every year, you know, the growth in uh, the level of complexity of technology just opened up opportunities to, you know, bigger attack service to attack service. It's just yeah. been a growing market. Um, and, uh, and the underlying problems that companies had that prevented them from really developing a very secure posture um, really haven't changed in many ways. There's not a great business model for securing technology. Um, oftentimes it's looked at as like an insurance policy. You know, we're going to go spend millions of dollars on security technology, but what does it really give us in return? You know, mm -hmm. there's a risk uh, reward question that executives have. And so, um, so that business model behind security has always been a little bit dubious. And so, you know, people leave themselves open to attack or you know, just can't find the means to secure themselves. And, and that, that gives opportunity to you know, so cyber attackers. And so that, that kind of, it's it, hasn't, it hasn't changed a lot from that perspective. It's always been a tricky business model. Meanwhile, the complexity of technology is such that um, you know, every time you introduce something new, you digitize a new process, you create a new opportunity for an attacker. Right. So we have opened up the floodgates for cyber criminals to you know, be very creative in their, uh, their tactics and their techniques to, you know, in terms of stealing data or um, doing all sorts of other malicious things. And so um, there's a ton of innovation there. I think the, the, the finest point on that is to say that um, cyber uh, professionals, cybersecurity professionals have all sorts of limitations around what they can do because you have to operate in the context of the business, but a hacker has no rules. So we call this kind of asymmetric warfare where the mm -hmm. attacker has, you know, sort of free reign and an ability to do whatever they want. You know, the people who are protecting networks are actually fairly constrained. And so it's just going to be this sort of um, age old problem that will be, um, I don't see an end to it. Uh, but um, hopefully people in general get much more sophisticated and, and uh, there's a growing awareness of the level of investment that people need to make in order to keep themselves secure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think the awareness place is huge on that to just think twice before you, you open something or, or click on something will solve. Obviously that's not the, the silver bullet, but it'll solve a lot if people just kind of second guess themselves before they, they click on stuff. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's dive into the, the future of work. Obviously, you know, people's day-to-day -day has, has changed over the last 18 months and, and what the, you know, the situational aspect of work looks like. But looking at the, the future of work, what do you think that really is going to look like over the next couple of years? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there are a couple of different perspectives to take on that. But to start, I do think this is conversation that we're having right now, the hot button conversation around remote versus hybrid versus in mm -hmm. office. Uh, I think that that's the kind of the, the prevailing conversation right now. And, and I expect that will go away. 
I expect that we will uh, settle that question in the next year or two. Business doesn't like to operate in uncertainty. So while we are right now in a phase where everyone's trying to figure out what jobs can be remote, what jobs have to be hybrid, what jobs have to be in an office, I think we're going to make those decisions and people will settle into the roles and there'll continue to be some shift probably over the next year or two. But generally speaking, I think um, we'll land ourselves in a place where we just have a much better feeling for how work can best be done and um, people will settle themselves into positions that work for them personally and professionally. Um, I think the, the lasting issue that, uh, that the pandemic accelerated but was already in place is that um, that there's a lot of there's so, so much change in the workforce jobs that um, are going to be here in five years haven't even been invented yet uh, and so from a employer or employee slash worker perspective I think people are going to stop looking at their careers as one big monolithic thing like I am a, an accountant and I will be an accountant until I retire. I am a marketing person. I will be a marketing person until I retire because the world isn't going to stay the same. So those yeah. jobs are going to shift. And, and hopefully what that what happens is that people start to say, you know, I am a person and I have a lot of skills that I can apply in a lot of different ways in a lot of different industries. And my career is not so much one big thing as it is a series of adventures, hopefully, uh, that I take along the way. And I have a, a constant ability and need to innovate myself and my own brand and my skills and my experience and apply that to whatever comes next because the world is uh, is becoming a more and more uncertain place. So I think from an employer perspective, uh, what that means is that we will start to hopefully think about character attributes and basic skills more than very specific skills because the specific skills get deprecated pretty quickly. Like if you learn a technology today, that technology might not be in use in two years. And so mm -hmm. how important it is that your job candidates know that specific thing, rather you want them to know the underlying skill that supports something more discreet. And so I think we'll see employers and hiring managers start to have an appetite for looking at novel skills, character attributes. Um, they won't care about 10 years of experience in a single thing. They'll rather want to see two to three years of experience in a lot of different areas. So they'll, they'll look for people who have agility as, as much as they have expertise. Create a common data environment for your team with 360 Sync. 360 Sync automatically transfers, organizes, and archives project files across applications. It is the only way to automatically sync project files between your server, Procore, BIM360, Bluebeam, or any other platform you use. 360 Sync is the only document management system designed by and for the AEC industry. Users have automatically transferred over 1 million files and over 2 million syncs. Set it and forget it. Create a common data environment for your team today using 360 Sync. Visit asti.com slash 360sync for more information. Uh, in some research on you before syncing up today, uh, I saw that you had written that the word career kind of needs to, to go away. And I thought that was really interesting. You kind of unpacked that just there. But so how do you make that mental shift in going away with career mentality and trying to kind of open up 
and, and also kind of sinking back to something that you said at the beginning with uh, your experience of, of Microsoft is having to learn kind of the underlying problems of the technology instead of knowing the, the specific technologies. Um, how do you go about that, that mental shift? Because that's going to be probably not intuitive to a lot of people, I would imagine. Yeah, I don't think it is intuitive. And you're, you're asking a great question because I think it is actually a, a hard thing to do. And um, when we think about, you know, you asked me, what do I think is going to change in the sort of future workspace? I think that is a change that's starting to happen. So um, I don't think there's an answer yet. I think we're all going to have to figure this out as we go along. Uh, but one, uh, you know, so where a good starting point is, is really just changing your own mindset around what's important to you and your own values. Like if we're, um, we are have all, even, even sort of the youngest among us have been raised in an environment where school is this very sequential thing. We are studying to be a certain thing like that. A career is still um, held forth as something that is an aspiration for us to have. And mm -hmm. so just becoming aware of the fact that um, that might not serve you to be able to do a certain thing and changing your own internal value system around what's going to be important for you in your own life. Would you rather look back and say, I did a bunch of things, uh, you know, the, the, so there's some setups that you have to do sort of in yourself. Um, that's one thing. I think the other is um, being really curious about all the adjacent skills and, and the environment you're operating in. One of the most important things that happened for me at Microsoft was when I committed to becoming a student of the industries that I was supporting, right? So I had to shift my focus from, am I gonna learn the ins and outs of artificial intelligence or I'm gonna learn how the healthcare ecosystem works? You know, you have to become curious about the environment around you uh, and think about, think about what you do and then the adjacent skills that support that and become a little bit broader in your, um, you know, sort of in your own kind of learning uh, path, if you will. There's a lot there though, I mean, we're all, kind of an experimenting mode. And um, I'm always excited when I see people who decide to take a six week coding bootcamp or decide to go back and get a certification in design thinking or whatever it is. It's kind of a, a skill that's slightly outside of what you'd expect them to do because I think what they're doing is building kind of a robustness in their own career and, and they giving themselves an ability to be a little bit more agile so they can shift and move, you know, as the workforce or the, you know, the economy changes. Yeah. So is the onus then on the employee to kind of spark and develop that curiosity, find their passion and push the company to allow them that, that flexibility, or is it more on the company to, to train kind of that problem solving mentality and help foster that environment among their people? Well, that's a great question. I mean, you, you know, the, it seems like the right answer would be the employer, right? Like we'd like to think that it should be companies that take care of their employees, but um, but yeah, to be very realistic about there's two things. I mean, companies, if we are saying in general that this notion of career is going away, then you're sort of implying that the notion of tenure is also maybe changing a little bit. Like you can't, and for a company to invest in your education, they're going to assume they have you in a certain job for a minimum period of time. But if we're saying, well, hang on a second, Todd, Todd might wanna to do something completely different next year. Or, you know, he might wanna reinvent himself and move into a different department. It does change the investment model for companies to invest in employees. And not that they shouldn't, but just to call out, you know, some very valid 
um, constraints that em employers have uh, in that retraining, um, kind of the, in the business model of retraining. So it's a yes and answer. I think mm -hmm. employers need to think about that. There's also, um, you know, employee acquisition is expensive. And so if you can keep retention high, even if you've got lateral movement of your employees across different divisions, that's still oftentimes less expensive than always bringing in new people. And so some level of upskill, reskill is going to be important for employers to offer. It's going to be hard for them to do that because of the model. It will also be hard for them to do that because um, one of the things I discovered in having this conversation with a lot of you know chief people officers or HR executives is that they don't themselves know what they're sort of the demographics or not the demographics, but their job profiles will look like in five years, right? They're mm -hmm. going to go undertake massive digital transformation projects and automate big pieces of their business. Well, what is that going to mean for the kinds of employees that they'll need in five years? So how do you train for a future that is, you know, not murky. quite clear? <laughs> yeah, it's murky, exactly. So you have to have this shared responsibility where people also take it upon themselves to think about uh, what it is they'd like to do and continue to demonstrate an or a willingness and an enthusiasm around learning. A lot of times, I know at Microsoft, I hired lots and lots of people and, and you, you don't always get the perfect fit from a candidate perspective, but one thing that always um, swung in favor of uh, yes for me was when people demonstrated a passion for learning. Somebody has like a thousand certifications or you can just tell that they took every opportunity in front of them to learn something new. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that just the, you know, that kind of ownership of your own career path is itself um, a really nice um, thing to have in a, in a, a job market. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's uh, a both. And I think the onus is on the employee, but also the employer to um, embrace that, that mindset shift. And I don't think it's as, as threatening to employers to invest in their employees in whatever passion that they have. Cause I think in the long run, employers will find that by taking that deliberate time to invest in employees passions that they're going to stay because the, the culture aspect is so good and strong and vibrant. And I see that as one of the big drives and, and, and pulls in today's world that people are going to go to those healthy, strong cultural environments rather than like, here's my exact career path for the next 30 years, all perfectly laid out. Do they want those, um, that, that corporate culture is, is huge. Does that I, make sense? I, oh, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. I think it's a, I completely agree with you. I think it's, it's hard for a lot of executives to get there because it's really hard to measure the return. Right. On that. So I think that's the, the, the point, um, that, that I wanted to make, but um, in the end, you know, we've got a younger workforce coming in. They have a very different set of expectations uh, and culture is a big part of that. So if you aren't making meaningful moves uh, toward a better culture, you're gonna have a hard time recruiting people. Hey, innovators. Over the last year hosting this podcast, recording over 65 episodes with the greatest minds throughout the construction industry, I started to notice common themes in each episode. We've had waves of disruption and a digital transformation impacting every aspect of construction and the leadership skills required to successfully navigate these waters. The simple fact is there are those who allow themselves to be carried along by the waves of changes taking place. And there are others 
who want to take an active part in changing things for the better. In my opinion, during times of disruption, good leadership is all the more important. People will follow a compelling vision and are looking for leaders to pave the way no matter where they are in the industry. So I decided to compile my thoughts into an ebook for my listeners. You can download my new ebook titled Leading Through Disruption and Digital Transformation for free at bridgingthegappod.com slash ebook. Once you do, I'd love to hear your feedback. As always, keep innovating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to shift back to the employee side of things and, and their responsibility of it, you know, communication, self-discipline, and then being able to collaborate with, with others are, are three big important factors of that. How do you encourage people to focus on getting better in those areas? Well, communicate, to start with communication, uh, I think there are a couple of things that are sort of contextual to this environment where we have more people working from home because mm. uh, communication is very different when everyone's in the office together than it is when right. you know, we're all in, in different, we, we may not be remote, but we're remote from each other, right? And one thing I always um, or have felt over the last year that has been lost is that uh, the serendipity of a chance encounter, right? It's the, you, you get to a meeting five minutes early, sit down at the conference room table and you're sitting next to somebody you don't know and you introduce yourself and all of a sudden, you know, you're having this really interesting conversation about a project going on in your company you didn't know anything about mm-hmm. and you learn something and then you make a friend, right? Or you're walking down the hallway and you run into somebody you worked with two years ago and, and they have a little bit of info for you. And it's just that, the chance encounters that happen when people are in close physical proximity that I think we've lost. And Mm -hmm. and you have the luxury in an office situation of not having to think about that two minutes or that five minute increment, you just have them. And you do learn, like they have value. And we don't have that when we're remote. And so what would I do to kind of replicate that? I think um, you have to embrace distraction you have to embrace interruption. You have to embrace kind of the little Teams chat that shows up and, you know, those conversations because that's the proxy for the hallway, you know, or the coffee machine conversation that you used to have in the office. And those those mean those minutes have meaning, right? Yeah. So it's a, embracing a lot of that. You can get into this tunnel vision view when you're working from home, you're just on your computer and you've got nothing. And so every distraction feels like literally something that is, you know, has negative value. And I would, I would encounter that it actually has positive value. But the other thing is that, um, you know, one of the pieces of advice I used to give to new people joining Microsoft, because it's a company of a hundred and something thousand people, and it's easy to get lost. Um, I would say, you know, in every interaction you are in, every meeting, every conversation, always trying to do a bit of a, an assessment of the unique value you bring in that conversation or in that meeting, mm-hmm. uh, which means you have to look around the table or the virtual table and figure out what everyone else is doing. And then from there, you have the context for what you bring. And maybe you bring financial skills in that meeting. Maybe you bring de facto leadership in that meeting. Maybe you bring a novel point of view, but if you can know why you're there then you can get very effective in the way you communicate and what you communicate. So I, I think that is a skill that gets more important when we are remote and we have less opportunity to actually come together. When we come together, we have to really be mindful of how to make that valuable. And the first thing you can do is just to think about your value and what you bring. So that's communication. 
Um, you talked about self-discipline too, and that's really interesting because uh, that's hard. Um, but I, I've always admired people, uh, and I, you see this a lot with executives, who always seem to be operating in the context of their personal plan. Hmm. Like people who are very ambitious and very focused and goal-oriented often will develop an idea of what they want for themselves and a plan for how they're going to get there, the skills they need to develop, the people they need to meet, all of that. And, um, and when they do that very effectively, every single thing they do is operating in the context of that plan. They know why they're doing what they're doing because it's part of their plan. And I think that's a key to self-discipline because I don't think people necessarily are lazy or don't want to do work. I think oftentimes they just don't know what to do. And so if you can always be really grounded in the why of who you are and what you're trying to accomplish, then every little task starts to make sense for you and how you do that. But the other piece of self-discipline, which gets harder in the pandemic, is this notion of accountability, mm. right? When you're, when you're in an office or in a cubicle setting, you know, you can tell who's not working. Right. Uh, we don't have that anymore. So we have a lot of opportunities to not do work. So, um, so I think keeping yourself very accountable to what you were doing and accountability is extends not just to yourself, but to other people is super important. And one quick question you can ask yourself is how willing would you be to share your calendar? Could you, would you, are you willing to open your calendar up to your manager, to your manager's manager, to your teammates? Because if you aren't, you know what I mean? Like if you are yeah. willing to do that, then you're going to be really accountable for what you're doing every single day. So just that it's a mindset trick to, you know, make sure that, you know, you, you actually really do feel good about what you're, you know, the effort you're putting in every day. Yeah. I like that. The, the word that keeps popping up while you're talking is intentionality uh, across mm -hmm. both aspects of them, the communication and the, the self-discipline. I think that we've gotten the, the gift to practice intentionality <laughs> over the last year and a half, because you have to be more focused on, when you have those opportunities for communication, don't waste it. Be intentional on it. When you have that opportunity on the, the calendar, be intentional of what you're putting on there and don't have a lot of, you know, wasted time necessarily where you're, you're off just kind of doing whatever. So, uh, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a big word. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And then you asked about collaboration and that's a tricky one, right? Because innovation requires collaboration. Um, and I, I, Collaboration is tough in any scenario, right? Because typically um, you're working with people who are sharing ideas. There's a level of vulnerability there, right? Um, mm -hmm. Failure is a big uh, sort of an uh, uh, unavoidable consequence of collaborating on big projects. And so people often come to those situations where they're kind of their fingers poised on the off switch. You know what I mean? Like they're yeah. like, oh, I, I want to share an idea, but at any time I'm ready to hop out, you know, like to turn off here because because I'm sensitive to, right. you know, the criticism that might come. And, and so fostering collaboration with others, I think is, first of all, it's a mindset, uh, but it's also a mindset that translates into the language that you use. And the word I like to use or the phrase I like to use is yes. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's always something if somebody's got an idea, they're, you know, putting forth something it may not be the best idea. It may not be complete. It may not be appropriate, but there's always a level of goodness. There's always something in an idea that's worth it. And the ability to say, yes, yes, I love that. I love that because of these three things. And, you know, is a way to just use language to shift the perception, you know, of what 
has meaning in a meeting, even, you know, if it's not perfect. Right. So, so there's a bunch of stuff that we can do if we, if we start with the intention of making sure we keep everybody kind of at the table. The Bridging the Gap podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and championing innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I talk a lot about redefining what failure means to that uh, aspect of it. Uh, that if you don't try something, in my mind, that's that's failing. It, where if you try something and it didn't go according to plan, well, that's life. That happens sometimes. You know, not everything's going to be a uh, home run, but you can learn from those experiences a lot. And that can help educate you for next time. So you don't make that same mistake and you can keep getting better. So it's that continual improvement line that I think is more important than, than not trying something. Yeah, I completely agree. And you know, the other thing that's interesting about failure and curious what you think about this, I, I don't know that we know how to measure failure as success. Yeah. But I mean, we really only in the context of a project or a program or business in general, we absolutely know how to measure success. But if we're saying we want people to fail, how are we giving them credit for failures? Yeah, well, it's a tricky concept because you don't know the success of the failure until the next time when you've learned from that mistake, but then it gets counted as a success on the next project. And I think we don't take the time to loop back of, this was a success because I learned from this failure over here. Instead, we just take credit for that success and we move on. Right. But it's kind of a missing link, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't thought about that before, but yeah, you're spot on, I think. Uh, Well, shifting to technology adoption, how do you gain buy-in for new technology from people that may have a more kind of natural reluctance to technology and or really just change? Yeah, well, that's a, I mean, I think if we had that question, the world would look very different, right? I mean, um, the, my, in my experience at Microsoft and really in all technology companies that I've worked at, um, that's the biggest issue, right? It's never the, the sponsors of the technology of your problem. It's that, you know, the sponsors are typically in the minority mm-hmm. and there are a lot more people who, um, you know, to use your word, have a reluctance uh, for adoption. So, uh, I mean, in my experience, there, there are things that you can do. I mean, there's a very, there is a process to address that. Um, the first thing, and it sounds so obvious, but it actually doesn't happen very often, is that you have to give a lot of space in the beginning of a project for all the reluctance that you hear. You know, we don't want to do that. The, the instinct is to you know, kind of give it lip service, but mm-hmm. try to move it to the side as quickly as possible because, you know, because it's our project and we love it and we actually don't know that's going to work, but we really want to try. And so, you know, you're trying to move the novos out of the room as fast as possible. And that's, a, it can be a good short-term strategy, but it's a terrible long-term strategy because all that stuff comes back to bite you if you don't yeah. address it up front. So, and, and actually the reluctance, the 
objections that you, if you give them some air and give people the space to talk about them, um, they become very helpful later on in the projects. But the first thing is to, you know, find a place in yourself that allows you to give all that as much space as possible uh, and let people just talk about it. That from there, I think the, the response to those objections, uh, which is, is the why, right? Which itself is really, really, really important if people, and again, it seems obvious, but I've seen so many big projects not be clear on why, right? right? It's not fully articulated. And it's not that it's not articulated from a certain team or person's perspective. What always happens is that you don't, people don't articulate the why from another person's perspective. Like I get Mm -hmm. why from, you know, you're an engineer, of course you want this solution, but I'm a finance person and I don't get it. So yeah. tell me the why for me. And that's a hard thing to do. But if you can get to the why, then as you're giving space for people to talk about their concerns, their objections, their overall reluctance, their you know dislike of technology, you can always bring that back to the why. And you can iterate on the why as well. Uh, and, and also the solution. So it's not just why we want to do it, but what is it going to look like if we are successful? And so, you know, again, they seem like nuts and bolts things, but, um, but oftentimes that doesn't happen. Um, from there, it gets kind of complicated because the other um, hitch in this process is that oftentimes we don't think end to end about a problem. Like there's no, there's no business of any respectable size that isn't itself a very complex ecosystem of process and technology and people, you know, all sorts of other business constraints and it's all connected. So when you are trying to solve a problem, oftentimes it's just not possible without a a big multidisciplinary team for you to think very end to end about the the root cause of the problem, all the kind of antecedents of the problem, Mm -hmm. and then the solution in the middle of it. And then all of the consequences of the solution, like how did you change how are you going to change, you know, other pieces of your business as a result of, you know, the thing you want to do today? And so that's the, really the end-to-end view. And um, so when I said like the reluctances, the objections are really important uh, to collect in the beginning, this is where they come in handy because almost always those objections is because somebody thought about a different part, like they're in that end-to-end supply chain of problem they're just in a little piece over here in the middle, or you know, they're kind of thinking about an unintended consequence at the end. And it forces you to be very, very holistic, right? Yeah. And that's how you get to robust solution. But the problem with that is that it gets really big. That's when you get scope creep and everything gets really big and unmeasurable and you can't do anything. So there's an art to being end-to-end, but then also being discreet and peeling off a very, very simple or a small part of a problem. Like you're only going to do a solution for one location or for a certain segment of employees. So you're thinking end to end, but just you're also thinking about something that's small enough to be measurable. Yeah, interesting. So are, are there kind of specific essential foundational building blocks for a successful technology adoption in your experience? I mean, there's a bunch of stuff, but I think the three that I think of, it's, it's a shared, uh, a shared uh, understanding of why you're doing it. Uh, there's a shared understanding of the outcome, what it looks like. Like you've got to have some kind of North Star. There'll be a lot of innovation and, you know, sort of changes in the middle of the project. It's a windy path and kind of an unknown path, but as long as you know where you're going, that's important. And, and then the third one is a shared sense of urgency. 
right? Everyone has to feel like this problem has to get solved in a, in a agreed upon timeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you can do that, if you can have the shared sense of why and outcome and urgency, I think you, uh, yeah, you have the right foundation to move forward. Yeah. I love that. I think it goes back to a storytelling element as well, too, that you have to tell the the story of what's in it for them to each individual stakeholder group that is affected and involved in whatever you're trying to, to change and to innovate, to get that buy-in and get them not only just bought in and begrudgingly doing it, but excited in the process too. And that's when you start seeing some more success in it. Yeah. People want to be part of the solution. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, if you could kind of snap your fingers and innovate one thing in the the tech industry, what would it be? Um, I would innovate access to to digital skills. I think the solutions are all, you know, the the technology only exists to serve us, right? It's a human thing at the end of the day. Uh, And so there are no, there's no shortage of problems. Uh, to be solved. There's only a shortage of people to solve them. And how do we fix that? And we give them skills they don't have today. Yeah. Very nice. Well, how do people find out more information and, and connect with you? Yeah. I mean, my biggest, um, you know, I have a website, but I, I um, get a lot of uh, reach outs on LinkedIn. So, and that's uh, where I spend a lot of my time. So I would just go Jennifer Byrne at LinkedIn and um, find me there. Sounds good. Well, last question for you. What does innovation mean to you? Innovation to me means uh, a fresh look at an old problem. So it's a, yeah, reinvention of uh, what we thought was possible. Yeah, I like it. Jennifer, thanks so much. I I wish we could keep uh, going on talking and unpacking all this stuff. This This has been great. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me, Todd. It's been super fun. Absolutely. And now it's time for my Todd takes from this episode. And let me tell you, it was hard to boil this down to three takeaways. There was so much great insight from Jennifer. First take though, spend more time learning and understanding the problems, even over the technology. You do this by getting to know the people that will use and be impacted by the technology. Second take, develop and then own a healthy sense of curiosity. It is important to look for and build the muscles of agility and resiliency. Look around at the adjacent skills needed for you to always be learning and growing. And final take, know why you have a seat at the table. We all bring a unique perspective and value to every meeting and interaction. What's yours? When you are able to answer that question, you will be able to become much more effective in your communications. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software at asti.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. As always, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining us on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Bridging the Gap is directed and produced by Todd Wyant, edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an applied software production. Copyright Applied Software 2021.